Warning, the following podcast has some foul language. You may wish to earmuff the impressionable. It's Wednesday, August 24th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A Polish scientific institute classifies cats as an invasive species. Quite a few pejoratives there. I don't think it's accurate. Cats are, to be fair to them, remorseless murderers of birds. That's true. But they have Polish citizenship just as much as anyone else. The issue is that cats do in fact go on killing jaunts quite often. And the uproar over them being labeled an invasive species, specifically invasive species number 1787, according to the Polish Institute. Yeah, cats kill about 140 million birds in Poland every year. Felis catus was domesticated probably around 10,000 years ago in the Middle East. So technically, they're a species alien to Europe. Then again, the Slavs have only been in Poland a few thousand years, less than Felis catus has been around. Who's to say who's invasive? The people who could talk, I guess, and articulate and hold a concept of species and invasiveness. So zooming out, cats kill, according to the journal Nature, free-roaming cats kill about mm, between 1.3 and 4 billion birds each year. To which I say, thank you, cats. Can you imagine trying to sleep past 5.30 a.m. on a Sunday with 4 billion more birds outside your window? Who's thinking, you know what the world needs? It needs 4 billion more birds in it. You know how many birds there are in the world? 200 to 400 billion. We're fine. We're fine with the number of birds. Let cats have someone to play with. And by play with, I mean rip the throats out of. I came across an account of a cat who killed... An entire species. Now, when I say a cat, I don't mean, oh, the Maine Coon or the Persian. I don't mean a type of cat. I mean a singular cat, a genocidal cat. So he had first risen to power in Germany in the 20s. No, he lived on Stevens Island, an island off the coast of New Zealand, and preyed upon the Stevens Island wren, which ornithologists believed to be a distinct species until Tibbles came along. Yes, Tibbles the cat, owned by David Lyle, who was one of the lighthouse keepers of the island's few companions. And Tibbles ate and ate well, feasting upon the wren, a small flightless bird. There, that right there, that's your problem. The history of extinct birds dotted with the word flightless. I'd say it's a design flaw. Soon the wren population was gone, but the cat population exploded because Tibbles was brought onto the island whilst pregnant. And her progeny themselves had progeny until, in a happy conclusion, if you were the type of person rooting for the wren in the aforementioned story, the lighthouse keeper, quote, requested the Marine Department for shotguns and ammunition to get rid of the island's swarming feline population. Nine months later, he reported he had shot more than 100 feral cats. I read that on the quite inaptly named site, Amusing Planet. Yes, if you're the John Wayne Gacy of cats and birds. Soon, all the cats were gone from Stevens Island, just like the wrens before them, leaving man as the final victor and arbiter of who is or isn't an invasive species. 
on the show today, I spiel about high-ranking military officials whose politics are merely rank. But first, on February 15th, 2019, in Aurora, Illinois, a workplace dispute turned into a mass shooting. The gunman had come ready for bear. The police responded. It took technology and intelligence to put an end to the chaos. Up next, we talk with Kristen Zeman, the police chief who led Aurora's response, and hear what that tragic day was like for those on the ground. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morphe. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. Kristen Zeman was the chief of police of Aurora, Illinois. You may know Aurora for a couple of things. One, that's where Wayne and Garth are from, from Wayne's World. (laughs) It is a large, 114th biggest city in the United States, second biggest city in Illinois. It is a large city. It is uh, urban, suburban. It is middle class, mainly upper middle class, 90% white, although the first uh, black mayor Uh, is in office right now, and he worked closely with the former chief of police there, Kristen Zeman. But we should also note that there is no town that is untouched by violence, untouched by mass shootings, and Chief Zeman had to counter that during her time in office. We're going to talk about her memoir, Reimagining Blue, thoughts on life, leadership, and a new way forward in policing, and some of the issues facing police today. Welcome to The Gist. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Let's start essentially where your book starts, which is the horrible, adrenalized incident where a workplace shooting uh, wreaked havoc on lives and your police force. Can you tell us, you know, you won't be able to do this as in compelling detail as you did in the book, but for a chief of police, when a mass shooting goes down in their jurisdiction, what goes through your mind? And then what's the, what's the reverberations of what happened? Yeah. Well, the first thing that you have to look at is preparation and you can be the most prepared department. And I would, I would argue that we were, that we are. Um, and that is because of the amount of active shooter training, uh, that even we started with my predecessors, but then ramped it up even more so in my tenure. So the credit goes to a training division that was polished and really prepared our officers for the unthinkable. And yet, even with all of that training, the minute that it comes over the radio and it was 124 uh, in the afternoon on February 15, 2019, I was sitting in my office and, you know, active shooter. Uh, we have an active shooter at, at, a, at a warehouse. And my first thought was, 
no way. There's it's like you go through this this disbelief and and then those words hang right. in the so air. even 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 a trained police officer has that. I guess it's just a human yeah. instinct of it can't happen here when of course we all know it can and you've been training for it for years. Absolutely. And and you play like you practice, but still it's in the moment that it happens and see, you know, arguably the best thing that you can do is what we do with the military, what we do with police is to train and hope that we never have to execute on that training. And so the day it happens and you genuinely do have that in the back of your mind of, oh, it's probably never going to happen here. And that's precisely what my mind was was going through. And then it just became tripping over each other to get out the door to get there. And as I was driving there with two of my commanders um, in the car, we were hearing it unfold. We're getting more information over the radio that it looks like it was an employee of the plant uh, potentially getting terminated that day. And then I hear uh, Officer Gomez shot. And then same, I'm going through the same motions is that, and then it just becomes this slow motion reel, even though we're driving probably, you know, 120 miles an hour to get to the scene, everything unfolds in slow motion. And then I hear the second officer was shot. And then I hear that they've located where the shooter is shooting from. And then those officers embark, you know, go right towards that shooter. And then I hear them, you know, call out that they've get, gotten shot. So ultimately what happened was this guy was getting terminated uh, in the afternoon and he was sitting in this termination meeting with the HR director, the plant manager, his union rep, and an intern. And he gets fired. The meeting lasts from what we understand under five minutes. He is terminated. He stands up, pulls a 40 caliber weapon out of his his fanny pack. It has a laser on it and he shoots the four people in the office. He chases down another guy, shoots him in the back who ultimately survives, goes down, shoots another guy um, on the loading dock. So five are dead by the time we're, we've we've arrived. And then, then the guy turns, because we got there so fast, the shooter turns his sights on our cops and ambushes them as they respond. And then, of course, you know, five of my officers got shot. So the five officers ended up surviving. And the way the story ends is it's a 90-minute manhunt inside a 300,000-square-foot warehouse. And he engages the officers, fires at them, and then the officers fire back and actually uh, end up killing him. Are you calling out tactics or are there people under you who just know what to do because they've trained for it? That is such a great question because instinctively myself and, and my two commanders, remember we've been cops for 27, 28 years and our training is to move towards the gunfire. And so that's what we ultimately started to do until it clicked in me. Wait a minute, this is not our job. We have to go set up the command post and we could hear the sirens coming from all over, which meant now I've got to manage resources. So my mind quickly flipped from uh, first responder to that of organizing the response. And so that's ultimately what, what we did. And that's where that training comes in, by the way, because we have our SWAT team uh, lieutenant that took command of the Emmer inner perimeter and the ones that call the shots, you know, as they're operationally and we're managing resources. So the training basically ensures that everyone has a specific job that is fitted to their skills and their ability. And on that day, when the, when the alarm goes, when the defecation hits the oscillation, they fall into <laughs> that role. 
So I always wondered, you could train for this forever, but most places other than, you know, Iraq don't have mass shootings more than once. Hopefully they never have them. So you're always doing it somewhat hypothetically. Uh, You'll never know how the reality will meet the training. Uh, I have a couple questions about this. One is how did it, you know, how did it hold up to what what the forces had trained for knowing, you know, with the knowledge that they wouldn't get... 20 or 50 real life reps. Sure. So now keep in mind that there are several kinds of training. One is classroom training, right? But I don't think that holds a candle. In fact, I know emphatically that you have to put people through a scenario-based training. So I'll start there. What we did was basically we commandeered an abandoned building um, whenever we could. And we put our officers through uh, the scenario-based where basically you turn off the lights, you put on the sprinklers, you add smoke, you hire actors, you have some munitions, which is fake guns, and you've got bad guys running through and your heart is palpitating. And, you know, I've gone through it for many years and it feels as though you're in the middle of a real event. So fast forward to that actual event. And this is why I say all the time you play like you practice. It's why sports teams run all of the drills, because when they're out there on the field at game time, that's when they execute. So one of my officers, and this is just such a great example of of what you're asking, he was uh, with one of the officers who were shot. So the shooter walks upstairs and point blank shoots one of the officers right in the leg. And second officer gets a shot off and strikes bad guy, but just nicks him in the butt and kind of knocks him down some stairs. And so that officer then ended up putting a tourniquet on the shot officer and covering the hallway. And I asked him after the fact, I said, Chris, what were you thinking when you were in the middle of this? This was real. And he said, I felt like I was in the middle of a training exercise. And he Mm. said, in fact, he said, I looked at, at Bull, the guy that got shot and said, hey, do attack load, man. And Bull said, no, I didn't even shoot my weapon. He's like, do it anyway, because that's what we're trained to do. And he said, it just felt like one of those training scenarios. So you got to put people right, right. That. And if he does the tack load, it locks him in more to what he knows, which yes. is the training. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, that's so interesting. And, and listeners should know that at the time, it's not, they're probably identifying with you right now. And they're saying, oh, I can only imagine what it would be like to be the chief of police while that's happening to my force. But listeners should know your ex-husband, who's the father of your children, is active on the force and he's in that firefight. And your then and now wife is also an officer on the force. So, you know, I don't know if that's good or bad to have so (laughs) many connections or emotional connections, but these stakes were really, really high for you. Yeah. And that's where that, again, that that flip of the switch comes in. And so I knew that my ex-husband was out there. In fact, of the five officers shot, he was uh, one of the ones standing near the two that were shot. And I've played the video back a hundred times and watched the bullet graze past his temple. And and I think my, my kids could have lost their dad that day. So he was in the middle of the gunfight as it was yeah. unfolding. My wife later went in when the um, shooter was still at large and she was one of the people on the rescue task force team going through trying to find the shooter. And yeah, she texted me and said, uh, I'm going in. And I had that moment of, 
of emotion that flooded me. And then I just said, go get that mother. I don't know if we can curse on this podcast, but oh, uh, you may given, <laughs> given the situation, please. Yeah. I can't, I don't yeah. want to stop you from it and yeah. jam up those emotions that you have yeah. to work through later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's what you do. I mean, this is, you know, that's what officers do. That's what they're supposed to do is run towards it. And so, you know, you, you have to put the emotions away. Yeah. And you mentioned, this is just a little detail, but I wanted to drill down a bit. There's something that I hadn't heard of before. I think I'm getting the phrase right. A nine bang? Yeah. Is that it? <laughs> yeah. And, and the, the point is, it's like, what, a firecracker or something that makes it sound as if uh, there's incoming fire, nine, nine shots. Is yes. that is that essentially what it is? The reason that I laugh at that uh, when you mention a nine bang is because, you know, when I became chief, I looked at our SWAT commander and our SWAT lieutenant and I said, guys, what what is our situation here? Should the boogeyman come to our city, regardless of what that is? Are we prepared for what come is coming, you know, and they said, listen, our equipment is expired. We need to upgrade it. We need to get more technology. We need more equipment. We need nine bangs. And I'm like, what the hell are nine bangs? Because, you know, remember sell this to my city council, I have to buy all this stuff. So I have to know a little bit about a lot. And I said, yeah. you guys just have to edify me, show me what this stuff is. And so they, they, you know, took me to all the demos with the door breaching, you know, explosive and then these nine banks, I'm like, what the hell are these nine banks? And why are they so expensive? And they did this demo for me. And basically you, you deploy these nine banks and they're exactly what it sounds like. They bang nine times, but it sounds like a high powered rifle. And so basically what it does is bad guy believes that you're firing upon him or her. And so then bad guy continues to retreat. And so those nine banks were deployed in that 300,000 square foot warehouse, pushing the shooter backwards where they ultimately were able to locate him. So it, it basically, it worked exactly as described. Yeah. So one one or two more questions about this mass shooting, because I think that the implications are very interesting. One is from your description of a guy who was fired and then went to get his gun and I wouldn't say snapped, but also this wasn't someone it would seem who is training in a paramilitary way, like say the Aurora, Colorado mm -hmm. mass shooter. Mm -hmm. He seemed to have somewhat advanced tactics. He used a plastic mirror instead of a steel mirror to not give away his position. And this is horrible, but I think of the people, not the cops, but of the people he took aim at, he killed a very high percentage of them, which doesn't always happen, especially with a pistol. What do you make of that? We thought he had a long gun when we were arriving on the scene and he was the first officer shot was literally running across the parking lot. And he must have been I, I'm guessing here, but maybe I mean, even 40 yards away, uh, maybe even more. So when he got hit, we thought this guy's got a long gun because of the precision. Like an AR-15 yeah, or, yeah. or a rifle, something that right. has a lot more precision and a lot more velocity to go further and, you know, um, and do yeah, more long damage. Long guns are more damaging. Yeah. Yes. And so. Uh, then we started to get uh, information from witnesses who work with him that says, no, he's got a 40 caliber handgun with a laser on it. And what I noticed from the video when we watched it later is that his gun handling skills were actually, um, I mean, I hate to give this monster a compliment, but, you know, he knew what he was doing. He was mm -hmm. tack loading and he was, he his gun handling skills were, were really well. Uh, it, and 
we learned later that he he was not in the military, but he had a target set up in his apartment. And so he would dry fire and practice uh, from what we could deduct. And so so that was really the only training that, you know, we that we knew he had. And, you know, just based on witness that he was a gun nut. Um, yeah. So but his precision was likely because of the laser that he had installed on his weapon. So I'm thinking, you know, there's a huge debate about defunding the police, which maybe we'll get into a little. Uh, why are the police so highly funded? Yeah, I know that 93% of the expenses go to personnel, but there, there is also these equipment expenses. Yeah. How often would a nine bang even come up? Uh, maybe you're thinking when it comes time to purchase it. What will be the efficacy? In the history of Aurora, how many... M- would, would there ever be a time to use it other than a mass shooting? But then it happens and you actually do use it and it has some positive effect in the situation. For sure. So, right. So my question is, is this the sort of thing where it clarifies, oh, when people question about all these expenses and, you know, the militarization of police, well, we're lucky we had it when we needed it. Is that the answer? Or is the answer that... You know, sometimes a lot of the expenses are going to be wasted because you never have to use it, but still it's better to be safe than sorry. Yeah, so I'm going to give you two two reasons why, and, and this is such an important topic because it was a, a major topic of conversation in my community. And I'll use the Bearcat. Uh, for those of you who don't know what a Bearcat is, it's a tank. You know, it is a yes. military tank. They rebranded Bearcat for domestic purposes, but if exactly. you just slap a couple different plates of armor on it, it could be in Iraq right now. Exactly. And so we have a Bearcat in our possession. We have never used the Bearcat in the way that we used it during the mass shooting. Uh, we've gone for high uh, high um, search warrants that are um, high risk, and we've taken it on the scene. It only comes out in in truly the most serious of threat matrix, those violent high situations with high violence. And um, so on this particular day, we could not get into the building. So this manufacturing plant was locked tight, uh, metal doors, and our officers were trying to breach the door to get in and they couldn't. And the Bearcat came in and basically crushed the door. And that's where the officers were able to go in and of course, you know, save more people. And so that Bearcat that was a, you know, a a piece of equipment that drew out some controversy was now the savior. And here's what I would say to that is that, you know, you have these items and and I'll use 9/11 as an example. The greatest terrorist attack of our nation uh, happened in New York City and black helicopters didn't fall from the sky and military soldiers didn't show up. It was police and fire that showed up. San Bernardino, let me just all of the major mass shootings and it's cops and firefighters that show up. And so you have to have the equipment as though you are in war because in those situations you are. Now, 99.9% of the time you will never use them. Just look at um uh, we riot gear. I also had to fight to get riot gear for my officers. I have three had it's I'm still getting used to the the fact that I'm retired. I had 310 police officers on on my police force. We had 50 sets of riot gear. That riot gear has never been used. I think we brought it out for a small protest back in the early 2000s. Now, 50 sets. Fast forward to after the murder of George Floyd and 
our city was burned. Our squad cars were burned. Our downtown was set on fire and our officers only had 50 sets of riot gear and they were getting hit in the head with bricks that were pried up from the streets. So the question becomes, man, should I have had those 300 sets of riot gear to protect my officers? And the answer is yes. And even though we hadn't used them in 20 years, the answer is yes. In order to be at the ready, it's the same concept as training. You hope you will never have to utilize that training or that equipment, but you had better have it when the time comes. And tomorrow we'll have more with Chief Zeman and we'll zoom out talking about national policing changes as she offers solutions. And now the spiel. A few weeks ago in Georgia, Colonel Mitchell Swan was up to be the Republican nominee for Congress. The Christian conservative touted his big issue in this ad. reviewing nuclear options while we assess transgender therapy options. As a retired colonel who led Marines overseas, I know this woke indoctrination will destroy our military. And that's why I oppose transgenders in our ranks. I'm Mitchell Swan and I approve this message because in Congress, I'm going to fight woke policies on every front. Interesting argument. One nation has invaded another. It is not going well for the aggressor, but we, a third nation, should worry because a tiny percentage of our troops have gotten gender surgery. Mitchell Swan came in eighth in an eight-person GOP field. I say eight-person field, but it was an eight-man field. Another retired Army colonel in the same race, Alan Sims, came in sixth. Over in Pennsylvania, yet another retired Army colonel, Doug Mastriano, is his party's nominee for governor. Mastriano, who believes the 2020 election results are fraudulent, staged a policy committee meeting in November of 2020 that gave Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani a platform for disinformation. Trump, too. Trump called into the meeting. Mastriano paid to have over 100 Trump supporters bust to Washington, D.C. for the rally on January 6th. But New Hampshire, yes, New Hampshire, that's where the really big guns are running. The state's Democratic senator, Maggie Hassan, is vulnerable this year. And the best hope the GOP had to pick up the seat would be for moderate-ish Republican Governor Chris Sununu to take on Hassan. Sununu, perhaps wisely reading the raucous mood of Republicans, declined to run. Into the breach, Don Baldick, U.S. Army General. Retired. Here's WMUR with the latest. Governor Chris Sununu recently slammed the retired Army general, saying he doesn't see him as a serious candidate. Then, over the weekend, a vehicle trailing Bolduc's official float in the Londonderry Old Home Day Parade displayed both a miniature Confederate battle flag and a Bolduc campaign sign. The general says when he was informed, he spoke to the man and had him remove the sign. As far as scandals, it's a tiny Confederate flag of a problem, but Baldick probably got what he wanted from the coverage. Two mentions of the fact that he was once a general. 
a general who supports Trump, who worried about Bill Gates putting chips inside of people, who denied the results and denies the results of the past vote, calling the U.S. election, quote, a corrupt system of ballot stuffing, and who says Governor Sununu is, quote, a Chinese communist sympathizer. And while I know there are a lot of crazy people in America, it saddens and concerns me that so many of them seem to have been pretty recently leading thousands of troops. Colonels oversee a battalion, could be up to a thousand troops. Generals oversee a few battalions, thousands of soldiers. There are 3,000 or so colonels in the army at one time. There are fewer than 150 generals. I don't want veterans who hear this to think I'm smearing most officers or think this is the trend. Quite the contrary. What I'm trying to articulate is that it kind of shocks me when I hear that a person who has risen to such an esteemed rank could traffic in these ideas. It shouldn't shock me. But I think of another congressman who has what I consider extreme views from the other side of the aisle. This con- all right, it's Jamal Bowman. Anyway, Jamal Bowman is a former middle school principal. And maybe because my parents were teachers, I think often and say, wow, I wouldn't expect as ill-considered a vote, say, against infrastructure from someone who I think would have to show judgment and practicality as a middle school principal. I hold that in pretty high esteem to run a middle school. These people were colonels. They put guns in people's hands and sent them into harm's way. I'm not talking about games of dodgeball or two points off for lateness or hall passes. I'm talking about forays into hostile territory. And not only were they colonels, this one was a general. Yeah, and Mike Flynn, I know he was a general, and I know 88 generals endorsed Trump, but it still kind of shocks me that they could be so unrooted in reality or rooted in unreality. Well, maybe they are rooted in their version of reality, their parties, Mastriano and Baldock at least. One got their party's nomination, one is leading in the polls. That's the reality of republicanism today. The general reality for Republicans is embracing a general out of touch with reality. Let's hope an incursion of sensibility overruns their position in the general election. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the GIST's assistant producer. Joel Patterson is the GIST's senior producer. As COO and chief medical officer of Peachfish Productions, Michelle Pesca once said the only chip they're putting inside of her is a Dorito. I lied. Baldick actually said that. Also, Michelle doesn't eat Doritos. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Peru, Peru, And thanks for listening. <laughs>